Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. What do you guys think creates a psychopath? How many psychopaths do you actually know? And did you know that there can be a good psychopath and a bad psychopath? Mostly, there's a lot of bad psychopaths in the world, as you probably have seen uh, in the news or in films. But my guest today is the legendary Dr. Kevin Dutton. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he's a psychology guy. He's a research psychologist, best-selling author, and elite performance consultant. He, his interests or his principal research interests are persuasion, uh, social influence, the psycho- psychopathic personality, elite cognition, black and white thinking, and how the fusion of psychology and art can enhance and support mental health. I absolutely loved this conversation. We talk about his uh, his latest book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, as well as what uh, involves persuasion, along with black and white thinking, this idea of the whole gender ideology and, and trans movement, what's going on with that at the moment, where he sees it going. But we also do a very fun test, the uh, whether or not you are a psychopath test. And I highly encourage you guys to follow along with that test. You've got to get a pen and paper out to actually do it or you can do it on your phone, whichever works for you. But it's a lot of fun. Uh, I scored. You have to listen on to hear my score, what it was. But I was actually pretty shocked about it. But this is uh, quite an informative conversation. I have no doubt that a lot of you are going to love it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. You can also follow Dr. 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 Dutton on Twitter. I'll leave his Twitter handle in the show notes below to make it easy for you guys. But if you do uh, do the test, and I highly encourage you guys that you do do the test, then tag Dr. Dutton on Twitter. Let him know about your score. It's Trust me, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I had an absolute ball doing this conversation. Uh, but yeah, also my friends, don't forget that I have teamed up with the incredible Joel and Zach Perna from Slouch Potato, their great lounge where I 
I, I love wearing it. I wore it during this conversation, the shirt, a slouch. Uh, and these guys have got brand new slundies, which are basically undies, the most comfortable underwear you'll ever wear. So if you're a female or a male and you want to get some underwear that is super comfy for your, your private parts and definitely go and get some, you can use discount code STORYBOX. That is STORYBOX at checkout for 10% off your order. And I highly encourage you guys, if you want to wear the comfiest clothes in the world, then go for slouch. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Kevin Dutton. Yeah, that that was the first one, actually, Jay. So that was the book which um, started everything, really, mate. So... um, it's uh, it was a book about <clears throat> uh, persuasion, and um, I uh, at the time when I wrote the book, um, people thought that persuasion was very much a, a matter of due process negotiation. Uh, we get it right as many times as we get it wrong. Um, but I heard a story, um, a real story about Winston Churchill. There's a lot of apocryphal stories about Winston Churchill, but this was a, a real story. Um, and it got me thinking about persuasion in a very different way. I'll, I'll tell you briefly. One one evening at the end of a lavish party for Commonwealth dignitaries in London, Winston Churchill spots a fellow guest about to steal a solid silver salt cellar from the table. Right now, call on the one hand between the desire to uh, avoid an undignified contretemps uh, and equal and opposite desire on the other not to let the bastard get away with it. What is Churchill to do? Well, what he does is he picks up the matching silver pepper pot, puts it inside his own coat pocket, wanders over to the gentleman in question, takes it out, sets it down on the table in front of them and whispers surreptitiously in his ear, I think they've seen us, we'd better put them back. (laughs) Problem resolved simply elegantly and without any further ado. And, you know, like it was a brilliant masterstroke and uh, Churchill was a brilliant persuader. And when I heard that story, Jay, it made me think that there is clearly a brand of persuasion out there which works first time, which is immediate, incisive and instinctive. So I, I wondered to myself as an academic uh, who was studying social influence at the time, well, is uh, is due process and negotiation merely what we resort to when we can't, for a better way, find the key to unlock situations? Maybe there's a key to every situation uh, that unlocks it, uh, as Churchill found, but the rest of us just are scurrying around trying to find it. We can't 99% of the time. Uh, so that, that was what Flipnosis was about. It was about um, working out what the DNA of uh, of persuasion was um and in a nutshell because i know you're not going to read it mate um <laughs> in a nutshell if you if you want if you want to persuade someone to do something for you it's very very simple you need to do two things right make sure that they like you right because no one let's face it right no one does something for people that they don't like yeah. And make sure that it's in their interests. Make sure that it's easy for them because no one does stuff that's difficult and no one does stuff if it's not in their interest or they're, or they're less likely to. So just imagine, let's flip it, right? Let's say that you're trying to persuade someone to do something and they can't stand you, they hate your guts, yeah. and they're doing it for you, not them. Well, good luck with that, pal. 
right? But if you're trying to persuade someone to do something and they really like you and you're doing it, you know, for them, they're going to do it. So frame your message so that it is in someone else's self-interest and uh, and make sure they like you. You know, I grew up in um, in a pretty rough part of London, Jay, and I, I got all that from my dad, who was actually, uh, he was a psychopath, my dad. No question at all. He was a market trader, not on the stock market, but on the streets. He would he would sell, you know, all kinds of shit to anybody. You know, he would he, he could sell shaving cream to the Taliban. I mean, he really was. He, he, he was he was ruthless. He was fearless. He was nerveless and he was shameless. I, I never once saw him embarrassed. Um, and he could do things that mo- most normal people would find impossible. And, you know, when I eventually got into, you know, researching and, and working and studying and writing about psychopaths, it was pretty much my old man that started it all off. But he was a brilliant, brilliant persuader. Um, and I'll always remember, I'll give an example. Uh, I always remember one evening, I was only around nine or 10 years old. And um, uh, he took me out. We'd been working on the market stall all day. And um, I remember him taking me to an Indian restaurant for dinner. Just as he's about to pay the bill, he suddenly turns around to me and he says, Kev, uh, if there's one thing I want you to remember in life, son, it's this. Persuasion isn't about getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's about giving them a reason to do what they do want to do. That's a really key lesson, that is, Jim. Wow. And so with that, he takes his spoon. He says, "Watch and watch, listen and learn. He takes his spoon, mate, and he tinkles it against his glass. And the entire restaurant falls silent. And he gets to his feet and he decides to make a speech, spur of the moment, impromptu. And he says, right, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming. Now, I know that some of you have come just around the corner. Some of you have come from a little bit further afield. Uh, but I want you to know that you're all very welcome and that it's very much appreciated. Oh, and there's a pub across the road called the King's Arms in which we'll be hosting a little drinks reception after this. It would be great to see you all there, right? At which point he starts to clap, Jay. At which point the entire restaurant starts to clap, right? Because none of them want to be seen as the gate crashes to the party, right? So picture the scene. All of a sudden we've got an entire restaurant full of people, never seen us before, never seen each other before, all applauding wildly, right? Well, anyway, as we're leaving, remember, I'm only about nine or ten, I can't resist it, so... I say to Dad, but Dad, we're not we're not really going to the pub, are we? And I'll never forget it, mate. He puts his arm around me and he says, of course not, son, but let me tell you something. That lot in the restaurant, oh, my mate Malcolm, he's just taken over as landlord. He'll make a few quid tonight. Now, that is the kind of thing that he would just do like that without the mm. blink of an eye, without even thinking about the consequences, with typical psychopathic uh, personality. But, of course, a lot of those people would have gone across to the pub that night because it, it framed it in their interest. They were going to get a free drink out of it. Little did they know the joke was on them. But anyway, he's uh, he's dead now, so it's too late to uh, to come after him. But he would do all kinds of things. He was a master persuader, my dad. Um, and that's where I got it from. I always remember, I'll shut up in a minute. I always remember another time we were selling, this is the kind of thing he'd do. We were selling a load of diaries in a market store, uh, calendar diaries. And these diaries were very different to anything we'd sold before because they were actually bloody nice, right? Usually the kinds of things we sell were like rubbish, you know, and they were leather-bound, they were embossed, they were they were slim, they were very slim, actually, and there was a reason for that. Yeah. Anyway, we must have sold about, I don't know, 300, 400 of these things in an hour. They just, honestly, it was like curry to a piss head. It was like they flew off the store, these things. Anyway, when we got back to the apartment, you, you know, after we'd finished, I said to Dad, those diaries, Dad, they were, they were lovely, weren't they? They were half thin. And he said, yeah, there's a reason for that, son. 
And I said, well, what's that then, Dad? And he said, April was missing. And I said, and he gets one out of the drawer, Jay, right? And he opens it up, January, February, March, May, June, July. I said, well, well, Dad, we just sold about four of these diaries. What are we going to do? And I'll never forget it, mate. He said, nothing for now, son. But come the end of March, make sure you pack your swimming trunks because we're off to Spain for six weeks. I'll never forget it. It was the kind of thing he would, as I say, would just do. So he was the he was the catalyst for both books, really, Flipnosis and Psychopaths. There you go, mate. Pick the bones out of that. Oh my goodness. There's so much that I want to ask you. But do you think, firstly, was that inherently your your dad, like that personality trait, or was it something that he learned from his father? Well, I don't know. I I think his my my granddad died during the First World War, so I don't think he learned it from his from his granddad. I I honestly think he was born that way, um, and you know that's you know it's, it's a great question actually you touched on there. I mean, are psychopaths uh, born or made? Um, yeah. Nature of the psychopath. Yeah, right? yeah. I saw what you did there, Jay. I saw what you were doing there. Mate. Was, <laughs> I'm was listening. Um, to, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out, mate, but to, to be honest, it's a bit of both, okay? So it can get very complicated, the, the nature-nurture argument. So let me put it simply, right? Um, imagine that um, uh, you're uh, – let's take a bullet and, and a gun analogy, all right? So let's say that your DNA – we're talking about psychopaths now. Let's say um, the your DNA to be a psychopath is like a bullet in a gun, okay? Now, for that bullet to become live, for the gun to fire, right? I mean, guns don't usually fire on their own anyway, unless you're Oscar Pistorius. Uh, but anyway, uh, guns don't – you can cut that. But no, don't <laughs> – um, guns don't usually fire on their own. You need a finger on the trigger, right? So in other words, if that bullet is your, let's say, I'm simplifying this now, by the way, if that's your DNA to be a psychopath, yeah. then it probably won't become live until there's a finger on the trigger which releases it. And that finger on the trigger is usually some kind of abuse or maltreatment or something like that in formative years of your childhood. So it could be emotional abuse, it could be sexual abuse, could be physical abuse, something like that. If you've got the bullet in the chamber, usually it's released by, um, as I say, an abusive finger on the trigger. Um, but it's not an exact science, Jay. I mean, I've dealt with psychopaths who came from very loving family backgrounds and who went on to do some pretty nasty things. And, of course, we all know people that have come from really shit family backgrounds and environments who have been absolutely fine. Uh, the majority mm-hmm. of people are. So it's not an exact science, mate. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that if you are, if you've got the bullet in the gun, if you're a, if you if you've got the psychopath DNA, um, and you come from a really good family background, um, rather than you know, killing, you know, people, innocent people or something like that, you might as the famous Reuters headline once put it, be more likely to make a killing in the market. So you might, if you get a good education, become a CEO, or you might become a a test pilot or a surgeon, special forces. You might go into that kind of career if if you've also got the requisite skill set necessarily to take you into those careers. So bottom line, mate, it's a bit of both, really. Nature and nurture. Are all psychopaths good at persuasion? 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've I've never yet met a psychopath that wasn't persuasive. Um, you could argue that the bad ones, because of course I'm I'm well known for making the distinction between good and bad psychopaths. So I've, I've worked with both. Um, good, um, bad psychopaths. You might say um, certainly people that have been on the wrong end of them. You could say are manipulative. Uh, rather than persuasive. But it's the same thing, really. I always, again, I simplify it. It's a bit like magic in Harry Potter. you got black magic and you got white magic. It's exactly the same principles behind both of them. Uh, it just depends what ends you use them to. So persuasion used for bad ends you might call manipulation. Persuasion used for good ends you might call social influence. But, yeah, most psychopaths are very good at persuasion, um, the reason for that really is because they don't usually have the um, emotions. Uh, that part of their brain is switched off or dialed down. They don't have the emotions that the rest of us have. They don't have, I was just talking about me, old man, me dad. They don't have the shame. They don't have the embarrassment. They don't have the fear. And so what that means is it means that they are able to sometimes calmly and dispassionately um, just put their fingers on things that kind of get the rest of us running around. Um, they're like psychological cat burglars that can slip into our emotional airspaces without us even knowing. And so they can get caught up in an argument without feeling the heat and the light of it like the rest of us do, uh, which makes them, um, well, actually, you know, it makes them very good lawyers as well, very good barristers. But generally speaking, yeah, psychopaths are very good persuaders. I've always been interested in the distinction between, all right, well, what makes a a bad psychopath? What is the the catalyst for them in terms of actually going into that direction versus someone that you would consider to be a good psychopath, someone that is of the pers- very persuasive, but they're they're confident in nature, they're they're charismatic, so to speak. They're not necessarily going to do anything that's bad. What are some of the distinctions for you that you've noticed that makes someone go down the the wrong path? Yeah, I mean, well, we kind of touched on that just a little bit earlier, so it's a good question to follow up with. Um, you know, it depends really um, on on the kind of background that you have when you're growing up. It depends what kind of things you're you're um, you're exposed to, what kind of influences, whether you have a rough like or, or, or an abusive childhood. Um, that can obviously turn you in in a, in a wrong direction. Um, education as well. Um, you know, if you have say um, psychopathic uh, tendencies, naturally innately, uh, but you come from a good family background, you have good role models, and you get a good education, uh, then you're more likely, as I say, to find occupations which. Uh, can can use those psychopathic characteristics, uh, but to the good of society. I mean, it, it's true. I, I, I think I think it. You know, when when most people hear the word psychopath, they instantly think of you know serial killers like Ted Bundy uh, or on the silver screen Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. But actually, when uh, it's probably worth clearing this up, when psychologists like myself talk about psychopaths, we're in fact referring to. Um, a distinct subset of individuals with a specific constellation of personality characteristics, such as uh, ruthlessness, fearlessness, mental toughness, self-confidence, coolness under pressure, uh, emotional detachment, 
focus, charm, charisma, and and those kind of trademark deficits in conscience and empathy that you hear so much about. Now, none of these traits is necessarily a problem in itself, Jay. In fact, all of them dialed up at the right levels and deployed within the right context can actually prove rather useful. The key lies in context and level, and, and, and this is crucial. So imagine, for instance, a, a, a personality mixing desk, okay, upon which those qualities I've just outlined comprise the, the I don't know, the hodgepodge of, of knobs and sliders, okay? Twiddle them up and down in various combinations, and you arrive at two conclusions. Uh, the first is that there is no one-size-fits-all objectively correct setting at which these dials might be positioned, but rather um, it will invariably depend on timing upon the particular set of circumstances you might happen to find yourself in. The second is that there exist certain jobs or professions, to come back to your question, which by their very nature demand that some of these dials be turned up just a little bit higher than average. Demand yep. what I call uh, precision engineered psychopathy. So, I'll give you an example. Imagine, for instance, you got the skill set um, to be a top surgeon, but that you lack the ability to emotionally disengage from the person that you're operating on, right? You're not going to cut it, are you? Well, <laughs> quite literally, actually. Uh, imagine you got the skill set to be uh, a top barrister, but that you lack that almost pathological self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it's not going to work. Imagine you've got this uh, strategic and financial smarts to be a top business person, yeah. but that you lack the uh, the ruthlessness to fire someone if they're underperforming or the the coolness under pressure to ride out a, a, a storm or the sheer balls necessary to, 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 to take a calculated risk when appropriate. Now, now those traits I've just told you about there, Jay, ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, emotional detachment, um, and uh, coolness under pressure, um, comprise five core characteristics of the psychopathic personality. They can be either used for good or for bad, but I wouldn't say they were dysfunctional in those particular contexts that I've just given you. So when we talk about psychopathic characteristics, again, it's like that magic kind of um, example that I gave in Harry Potter. Yeah. Depends in what context they're using, what combination they're used, at what levels they're dialed up with, up to, and, and the intention with which they're used. You can use them for good or you can use them for bad. Um, and that's why The Wisdom of Psychopaths, the book I brought out, was so controversial mm. because it was the first book which, which, and the only book still actually, Jay, which argues that actually, you know, not all psychopaths are bad. And if we start, you know, talking about psychopaths as bad and, and we demonize them as the media often does, then that is pretty much akin to stigmatization. Yeah. Of, a, of a of a of a clinical condition, um, and you know that's that's a pre. No one can really argue with that. No, you know, no one would talk about other clinical conditions or uh, or, or um, uh, mental illnesses such as, say, depression or anxiety or autism or OCD or ADHD. No one else would would derogate them and say like these are all bad. Yeah. So why why do that when it comes to psychopaths? I mean, you know, the neurosurgeon who might be saving the life of your three-year-old son or daughter, um, taking on a very, very risky operation that perhaps other surgeons might 
want to stay clear of and he successfully pulls it off Mm. chances are he's going to be very high on the psychopathic spectrum so you know we are stigmatizing people like that when we say all psychopaths are bad the writer george orwell once said good men sleep soundly in their beds at night because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf Mm. it might be an unpalatable sentiment to some but it just happens to be true how does the I guess, belief in a certain ideology, how much of that carries out in a bad psychopath in doing the wrong things? How much of it have you found links to it? In, in, in terms of what ideology? Uh, uh, any radical ideology they believe in, say terrorism or say yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, some, I mean, I, I have dealt with terrorists and I have to say that, um, it's a misnomer to say that all psychopaths, all, all terrorists are psychopaths, um, or are mentally ill. Actually, a lot of psychopath, a lot of terrorists are uh, very rational um, and quite sane. I mean, some are psychotic and deluded. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no question about that. Um, but some genuinely believe and have rational political arguments, rational being the the uh, um, the key word there, um, to, to back up what they're saying. Now, of course, I mean, you know, way back in time, let's not forget, okay, when we when we when we talk about terrorism, we 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 you know, obviously we think of recent events, our minds are clouded by those, but you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I mean, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. In the 1960s, in in South Africa, he was a violent activist. Um, and then, you know, obviously, um, when he in later years, um, he he built the truth and reconciliation process. So, so you know, the the idea that all terrorists are completely psychotic. Uh, psychotic is different to psychopathic, by the way. Psychotic means out of touch with reality, hearing voices, deluded, detached from reality. Uh, the idea that all all terrorists uh, are, are mad and psychotic is is just not true. Um, however. Um, a lot of terrorists that I well, a lot of I haven't, I haven't met a lot of terrorists. I met some. Um, the, the ones that I have met, I would regard as being pretty high on the psychopathic spectrum in the fact that they are able to turn emotion off um, in order to uh, sometimes commit violent acts which they see are necessary. I'm not talking about the really mad ones. I'm talking about mm. you know the uh, people who, who have got some um, connection with reality. Um, in very much a bit like serial killers, actually. So, um, you know, it's not all serial killers are psychopaths. Um, some uh, some are deluded, some are psychotic and all that. But but some uh, are actually not psychopaths, but are able to comp compartmentalise uh, their crimes and basically almost like put them in a separate part of their brain, um, which, is, uh, which is pretty interesting. So... Um, mission killers, for example, tend to do that. Mission killers are, are serial killers that um, prey on uh, um, set uh, groups in society uh, that they believe society should be rid of. Yeah. So it could be, um, you know, people of a certain sexual orientation. It could be people with certain hair color, people with certain religious, but it could be anything. Uh, so mission killers, um, a lot of mission killers aren't psychopathic. 
they're just able to compartmentalize um, their crimes and they actually think that they're doing good. Um, now, compartmentalization is something that we can all do, actually. But in in in, in mission serial killers, it seems to be, or some mission serial killers anyway, it seems to be something which is taken to an absolute extreme. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms, yeah, I mean, the, the, the terrorists that I have met, or those that have been connected with terrorism, rather, um, uh, yes, have been high on the psychopathic spectrum, but I wouldn't regard them necessarily per se as clinical psychopaths um they but they are high on the psychopathic spectrum and by the way um if we go back to to serial killers um people say well you know what what is how how you know people like you know you you ched bundy's and and those kinds of serial killers well how do you how do you become a serial killer um well it that's that's an interesting question i mean if you're a psychopath if you are a psychopathic personality you have certain formative experiences as a child um you might experience i'm talking about say you know sexual serial killers now you might at a formative stage of your childhood experience sexual arousal when an animal is injured or just sheerly coincidentally it's paired it's associated together or when someone else is in pain or when something bad happens to someone else if you just happen to experience some kind of sexual arousal at that time and you are of the right kind of personality or the wrong kind of personality i should say that can sometimes send you down a road um of 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 just you know you, that that first pairing of arousal and pain or arousal and blood or whatever can um again i'm simplifying it this is just the start of the road can send you down that particular path so being a psychopath is 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 no guarantee whatsoever that you're going to turn into be a serial killer um it's uh that depends on loads of other stuff going on in your childhood um, stuff which we've already covered, um, uh, but predominantly formative experiences. Um, you also need to be have quite an addictive personality to be a serial killer as well, um, as uh, as Ted Bundy actually articulated himself. He said, "You know, mm. k- k- you know, the 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 anticipation killing killing to Ted Bundy was an anticlimax." Um, he said it was that anticipation of murder, uh, which kind of really drove him on. And you find that with a lot of addicts as well. Um, a lot of alcoholics, a lot of drug people who are addicted to drugs. It's the anticipation, um, the actual, um, you know, the, uh, the imbibing of the drug itself is often an anticlimax, but it's very Moorish. So in order to, to keep killing as serial killers do, you need to have also, uh, an, an addictive personality to 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 go with the psychopathic personality, um, so it's complicated. So not not all psychopaths are serial killers, uh, and not all serial killers are psychopaths. I'm very curious about this distinction. Uh, is there a distinction at all between psychopaths versus someone that is psychotic? Yeah, um, but, and the two are often really mixed up in the media. Actually, Jay. Yeah. So someone who is psychopathic, as I say, um, is very much in touch with reality, 
they, uh, but they are ruthless. They are fearless, and they have empathy and conscience dialed down. They're the they're the core characteristics. Someone who is psychotic um, is also, you might say, schizophrenic. So they will be detached from reality. They might hear voices telling them to do stuff. They might um, have hallucinations. Uh, They may be paranoid, um, have um, feelings of being persecuted. Um, So psychotic means basically out of touch with reality, delusional, paranoid, whereas psychopaths, Arguably, as one top surgeon who I interviewed once put it, uh, are super sane. Hmm. They are very men- they're, they're mentally resilient. They 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 don't really get down. They live very much in the moment. They don't fear consequences. Um, so, as one, you know, very manipulative, uh, uh, we touched on that earlier. Neurosurgeon told me, you know, actually, super sane might be um, a good way of putting it. Um, I mean, it's it's arguable, you know. I mean, when you see, you know, people in say America, for instance, who are high on the psychopathic spectrum, psychopathic killers who are sentenced to the uh, lethal injection to the death penalty, and they just laugh. Mm. In court, they give the finger to the judge. I mean, if that happened to to you or I or to any normal people, you know, we'd be we'd be terrified. We'd be shitting ourselves. You know, we're going to die. That's it. Or at least we're going to face ten years on death row, and then we're going to die. These guys, it's like water off a duck's back. Mm. Um, so you know, I, on on one sense, you can see, yeah, well, that kind of sang froid, that kind of ice coolness under pressure i suppose it is quite quite an enviable trait really however it also leads you if you are a bad psychopath to do stuff that is is often horrible and unspeakable so if you are psychotic you can't be a psychopath essentially well not necessarily jay there have been cases of people that are both mm-hmm. uh, but it is rare um, the London, I'm not sure you guys in Australia will get this, although I'm one of you now. I'm in London at the moment, but I'm based in Adelaide now. So there you go. Um, I'm not sure Australians would have would have heard of this guy necessarily, but there was a, a gangland um, uh, duo in the 60s in London called the Cray Twins. Yeah, um, I know them. Yeah. The Cray Twins pretty much ran London and the gangland scene in London. Um, There was a couple of films have been made of uh, the Crays. One uh, starring the uh, the Kemp brothers from Spandau Ballet, the uh, the eighties band. As yeah, very good. I know the Tom Hardy one. That one was cool. Yeah, Tom Hardy was another one. Yeah, Tom Hardy was another one. Um, And um, both were psychopathic. Both Ronnie and Reggie were psychopathic. But Ronnie was psychopathic and psychotic yeah. as well. So basically, Ronnie um, was a very dangerous man because he would hear voices telling uh, telling him to kill people on the one half of his brain, and the other half of his ga- brain didn't give a fuck. Yeah. So uh, he was a very dangerous man. Um, and so, yeah, it's not unheard of, Jay. But um, it, yeah, yeah, it is. It is rare. 
Um, and if you if if you do you know if you do have someone that's got both, stay well clear of them. <laughs> would, be my, would be my advice, mate. <laughs> so if someone says to you, "I'm I'm hearing voices in my head," then you should be worried and concerned. Uh, well, well, definitely, absolutely, and you know it's funny actually because people often you know write to me, and I, 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 you know, they they say, "Dear Professor Dutton, um, I'm worried that I might be a psychopath," and instantly I think, "Well, if you're worried you're a psychopath, you're not." Um, but I mean, it's it's like it's a way of starting up a conversation. I, I'm always polite to people, and I always answer. I'm, you know what? Maybe I won't get any more emails like that. And I'm but yeah, it's quite funny actually. I'm worried I might be a psychopath. Well, um, don't worry, because if you're worried, you're not a psychopath. So um, if I, I've got a little test, actually, Jay, I've got a little test. I don't know if you want to do it, mate, um, and your listeners. Yeah, uh, I, def- two- I definitely want to do it. I'm not sure if we should wait to the end or if we should. Oh, I don't mind, mate. Well, you we, anyway. We can see we can see if you're a psychopath or or if any of your listeners are. Might be a good time to tell them. Listen, you you might want to get a pen and paper. Yeah, that's uh, good. Um, or you or you're not. No, you don't have to do it now. But if your listeners, well, yeah, we could do it now. You get pen and paper to score your mobile phone. You just need to make a little uh, make a little record of uh, of your scores. Um, All right, let's do it and, now. Uh, what I'll do, I'll explain what I'm going to do, right? So um, I'm going to read out, Jay, 11 statements, okay? Yep. And these statements all describe you uh, hypothetically as a person, right, as an individual, right? And you're going to score them according to how true, how accurate a description you think they are of you, okay? So I'm going to read them out, 1 to 11. And the scoring key is like this. If you strongly disagree, strongly disagree that the statement describes you, give yourself zero points for that, okay? Okay. If you if you disagree, give yourself one point. If you agree, give yourself two points. And if you strongly agree give yourself three points okay so it's a zero one two three scale zero strongly disagree one disagree two agree and three strongly agree okay and i'm going to read the 11 statements out and what you're going to do and the listeners play along at home um uh you're going to score each one according to um how you think they describe you as i read them out number one you're ready jay i'm ready now you you got to answer these honestly, mate. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't shout out what you get, mate, for obvious reasons. In a minute, okay. Yeah. So just write it down, right? Number one, I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur of the moment kind of person. I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur of the moment kind of person. Zero if you strongly disagree. One disagree. Two agree. And three strongly agree. Okay, that's number one. Number two. Now you'll see what I mean. Cheating on your partner's okay as long as you don't get caught. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I knew what you're going to because you were going to start calling your answers out there, mate, weren't uh, you? But I, I was about I saved, to. <laughs> I saved you me. from yourself, buddy. There you go. And whenever I do this at universities, I do this with students. It's a good way of teaching them uh, about about uh, psychopathic personality. Whenever they, whenever you do this in a big group, it's always the one where people are kind of looking over their shoulders, seeing what the person next to them is putting. Uh, so cheating on your partner is okay as long as you don't get caught. Number three, uh, if something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. If something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. 
Number four, seeing an animal injured or in pain doesn't bother me in the slightest. Seeing an animal injured or in pain doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, Number five, driving fast cars, riding roller coasters and skydiving appeal to me. Uh, Number six, it doesn't matter to me if I have to step on others to get what I want. Uh, Number seven, touched on this earlier, I'm very persuasive. I have a talent for getting other people to do what I want. Number eight, I'd be good in a dangerous job because I can make my mind up quickly. Don't think too long about that one, Jay. (laughs) I'll try not to. (laughs) Um, That's all rehearsed, this, folks, as you can tell. (laughs) Uh, We practiced this before, guys. Yeah, we practiced all the shit jokes. Number nine, I find it easy to keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. Number 10, If you're able to con someone, hey, that's their problem. They deserve it. Uh, I can't wait to see your score, mate, here, actually. We might might have a a live one here, folks, I think. Number 11, the last one, Jay. Uh, Most of the time when things go wrong, it's somebody else's fault, not mine, okay? Now, what you should have there, mate, and and uh, folks at home, you should have 11 numbers on a screen or a page in front of you. Yep. Uh, what I want you to do is top those numbers up, add them up, to come to a final total. He's still going. Look at this. It must be a pretty high score here, right? Okay, got okay. it. Okay. Don't, don't say your score. What I'm going to do now, Jay, I'm going to read out the scoring key. So, first of all, let, I think we better be serious for a minute. Um, th- we're not diagnosing anyone here, okay? Um, this is um, this is not a diagnosis. This is basically a test, an act test, I should say, to see roughly where you are on the psychopathic spectrum, okay? So, if you scored 0 to 11... You are low on the psychopathic spectrum. Zero to 11, you are low. I'll go through these, Jay, and then you can tell us your score, mate. Uh, if you score 12 to 17, you are below average on the psychopathic spectrum. 18 to 22, average. You can feel the tension rising, can't you, Jay? Right? 18 to 22, average. <laughs> Uh, 23 to 28, you are high. And 29 to 33, you are very high on the psychopathic spectrum. Now, it'd be really interesting, actually, when it comes out to um, to uh, hear what your listeners got on this, actually. And if they, if they tweet, um, be good to kind of find out what they do for a living. If they want to just say, oh, I scored 20 and I'm a, I don't know, um, nurse or whatever, it'd be good, pretty cool data to actually have a look at there. Um, so go on, mate, what'd you get? I actually got 16, believe it or not. 16, not a bad score. The high end of below average. Yeah. Okay. Now I t- I tell you what I I tell you what you look su- you look more surprised than anybody mate you do I mean I uh, actually am surprised <laughs> yeah yeah that's I it. I'd be yeah, higher. yeah yeah well I'll tell you something now right I often I often liken this as like a, although I'm a pom right I mean you Aussies can kind of take the heat more than we can I'm a this is a British psychopath scale not an Aussie psychopath scale and I always liken this to like temperature. 
So for us, boom, 16 is a pretty good temperature, right? We don't really like it too much hotter than that. Start getting into 30 and you're going to get badly burned, right? Yeah. Okay, that's where for us anyway. Um, but uh, so, you know, 16 is a pretty pretty good temperature. Um, I don't know, most most people like 25. That's kind of a pretty good temperature for most people. That's in the that's in the middle of the high bracket. And and I've argued in the past, actually, you know, that that psychopathy is a bit like that. Imagine a Martian came down to Earth, right? And and the very first thing they did was they went into a, a unit dedicated purely to the treatment of sun-related problems, right? So you've got people in there with dehydration, melanomas, sunburn, you name it, they've got it, right? The Martian might be forgiven for thinking, well, the sun's bad, right? Let's ban the sun. But, of course, we know the sun's not bad. We know that the sun can actually be quite good for us. Mm. Um, Sure, if you lie out on it day after day, uh, you're going to get badly burned. Uh, but actually, in the right dosages at lower levels, it can make us look good. It can make us feel good. And actually, we 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 not you know we wouldn't have been here at all if we didn't have the sun, right? Um, so I argue the same psychopathy. Yeah, if you lie out in psychopathy day after day, you're going to get badly burned. You're going to have a carcinoma of the personality. Uh, but at lower dosages, at lower levels, it's personality with a tan, mate. Right. Um, so, uh, there you go. Well, but below average, I get an impression you, you, you kind of regret not, not studying a bit more for that test during your life, Jay. <laughs> if, yeah, I, saw, yeah. I saw the one that you did with, uh, Francis and Constantine Kissen on trigonometry and I was oh, trigonometry. Yeah. yeah those boys yeah yeah I, I love the test I was doing it alongside you guys and trying to figure it out for myself but I didn't actually score myself in the end uh, I thought I'd mm. do it when I actually had you on the show do it live for everyone like you know why not yeah I, I find that I'm I tend to be decent when it comes to persuading people to do things I mean I've been doing it most of my life and even my yeah, parents cool. used to say to me I could sell a fridge to an Eskimo uh, at yeah, that times, yeah. I was always good at uh, debates in school. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I liked that side of things. The cheating question, I'm like strongly disagree on that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mainly because of how I was raised and and, and live. Yeah, no, mainly because you want to hang on to your partner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. okay yeah. And, and just treat, treating people with kindness and respect. Uh, yeah. I'm that sort of person. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, those were some fun questions, man. I got to admit, How, did you well, come up you know, with them yourself? Yeah, that was a test which uh, I'm I'm actually in the process of psych. I've been doing it for yeah, I've been psychometrically validating this test now, and just just in the final stages of of doing it. Um, do you know what? I'll tell you something, Jay. That test originally came out. Oh God, in 2014 or something like that. I was doing a TV show here in the UK. And um, I devised that test um, to go along with a TV show. It's called Psychopath Night. Um, And it became one of the most uh, filled out internet surveys um, (laughs) of all time. I think over 4 million people did it. Um, It went around like nobody's business. Um, And it's, yeah, because it's quick and easy and it's pretty accurate. Um, but um, never been done in Australia, I don't think. Um, and so it'd be great to to see how you guys fare on it. And as I say, uh, if you tweet your um, if you tweet your results, I'll give, I'll give you my Twitter handle. Uh, so tag me in on it. So it's at 
the real doctor kev dr for doctor at the real dr kev kev um tag me in on it folks uh because i'd love to know what you scored and i'd also love to know what you do for a living as well and see we might be able to do a bit of correlational um analysis on that which would be pretty cool i think it's a fun test yeah go ahead and tag myself and, and kev let us know what your your score are if you want to and sorry, sorry, Jay. Yeah, of course. Tag you as well, mate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's Thanks for coming on my show, mate. Yeah, that's, yeah. I don't have to know your score. I mean, it's more, yeah. you know, it's more out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah. But I, I did want to ask you, Kev, uh, a few more questions, if that's all right with you, because I know it's yeah, getting quite course. late. Um, no, maybe no, we can do course. a part two conversation later on. I mean, I'd, I'd love to yeah, mate. continue it with that's you. Good. Yeah. But I've because we've been seeing a, a lot of this in the news recently uh, about mass shootings, I've, I've always been interested in how much of it is it more of a, a belief side of things that has caused someone to actually go ahead and do this, more of like they've been able to cancel something in, in the left side of their brain, they've been able to put it aside versus yeah. it's actually something psychotic, psychotically wrong with them, them just snapping yeah. Mass killings, uh, uh, Jay, are a very different kind of psychology usually. Uh, actually, mass killings, the majority of mass killers um, have usually got a lot of pent-up anger and frustration. Right. Um, and it's that they've been letting it fester for years. And sometimes it can just be a trivial thing that started it and a trivial thing that ends it. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's some cases, of course, like Anders Breivik in Norway, who was a white supremacist, um, who'd been like, you know, as I say, he was uh, tied up to an ideology um, and was deluded and thought he was doing the right thing. So you do get ideological um, mass killers. Uh, But sometimes this impulsive kind of shooting you often get um in in the states a lot of the time is often to do with people who feel marginalized who feel rejected who feel that they don't have a voice um and basically it's just fested and fested and fested and in the end um it's like a pressure valve that that blows so it's a different kind of psychology to say a psychopath so Psychopathic violence, Jay, tends to be what we call very instrumental in nature. Okay, so imagine the um, imagine I was a psychopath and I'd met you, and we'd gone out for dinner. Let's say, and let's say I wanted. I saw you had in the days when we still used cash, mate. Let's say I saw you had two hundred dollars in your wallet, and I wanted it. Right, unless I'm a very stupid psychopath. Uh, I'm not going to mug you for it straight away, right? First of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to uh, con it out of you. So I'm going to tell you some sob story about how I'm going to be kicked out of my flat if I don't pay the rent or something like that. Please can I have the $200? Uh, it's, it's all bullshit. I just want that money. If that doesn't work, then I might wait for you to go to the, the gents uh, and then I might steal it out of your wallet when you're not there, right? Might do that. If that doesn't work and I still want it, then I might mug you for it outside. Um, So basically, my violence is instrumental. Mm -hmm. I don't really wish you any harm. I'm not a sadist. 
sadists are different in the sense that they enjoy inflicting pain for pain's sake. Uh, psychopaths aren't sadists, although there are sadistic psychopaths, yeah. um, a class of psychopaths called sadistic psychopaths. Um, but psychopathic violence is instrumental. So one a uh, pretty nasty fellow who I um, uh, interviewed in a high security unit uh, once put it very chillingly. And he said, uh, look, I never set out to hurt anybody. It was just collateral damage. In other words, look, if they get in my way, um, then they're going to get hurt. Uh, but actually, I'm not into hurting people, really, but I'm quite prepared to do it if you step in my way. So uh, psychopathic violence is very instrumental. It's cold and it's calculated um, and it doesn't like fester and build up over years. And then all of a sudden there's a, a lack of control. Now, a related question to that, Jay, which uh, you, 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 um, you listeners might and you, yourself might be interested in. Well, what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Mm. Uh, so these, these terms are often used interchangeably by uh, by the media. You know, technically speaking, when you're a journalist, they're, they're used, they're, they're the same thing when you when you're a journalist. But as a psychologist, there is actually a, a slightly different meaning. Um, so a sociopath is much more emotional and reactive than a psychopath. So um, a sociopath might uh, fly off the handle if you annoy them. They might in a pub, um, you know, let, let's say you and I met in a pub and um, I'm a sociopath and you happen to bang into me and annoy me. I might instantly react by smashing a bottle over your head. Then I'd get carted away by the police, put in jail, bailed. And uh, then I would once, perhaps if I'd sobered up, I'd feel quite remorseful about what I did and fearful of the consequences. <laughs> But I was impulsive, antisocial and violent at the time. Mm. If I was a psychopath and you happen to annoy me in a pub, I probably wouldn't do anything right there and then. But what I would do if I wanted to was wait for you outside and stick a knife in you in the shadows uh-huh. after after everything had finished. So sociopaths tend to be emotionally volatile, emotionally labile um, and reactive whereas psychopaths are much more instrumental, premeditated, calculated, cool, calm, um, and instrumental. So that's the difference between those two, just to clear that up. I was going to actually ask you that distinction. That was going to be my next question. But now my next question to you is, can ideas and ideologies be psychopathic? Can ideas and ideologies be psychopathic? Well, yes, yes they can. I think. I mean, I think all you've got to look at is, you know, Nazi Germany yeah. um, during the Second World War, um, and and other ideologies that um, you know that have cropped up before, before and afterwards. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely, any anything that um, that, as I say, indiscriminately kills people. Um, yeah, I, I would have no qualms at, at at saying an ideology can be psychopathic not perhaps quite in the same way that that um that, that people can be can be psychopathic but um but yeah i mean if you've got an ideology that is um, inhumane dehumanizing um uh unjust uh whatever marginalizes uh absolutely um, but again, you know, you've got to be careful there. There's a thing called moral relativism. 
which looks at morals um, in the context of culture. So, for example, um, in America, you can get the lethal injection uh, for murder. Um, in Saudi Arabia, you can be stoned to death uh, for various different kinds of crime, you know. Um, actually, that's cultural norms and mores in America, in Saudi Arabia, in the UK up until the 50s, I think it was, we used to send people to the gallows. Mm. Now, people who oppose the death penalty might say, well, we think that's psychopathic. Um, people who support it might well not. So you've got to be careful when you talk about ideology because of the argument of moral relativism. Yeah. This is more, I know this, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but this is kind of heated in, in culture at the moment. What are your thoughts on the whole gender ideology, the whole transgender ideology that's been pushed? Yeah, I think you know what. Well, actually, this is um, this is a, um, a, an issue which I tackled in in black and white thinking. Ah. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think that our brain has what we call what I call rather a categorization instinct. Okay, so we we have a natural selection has equipped us with the ability to categorize the world, to draw lines in the world, uh, because we have to we have to draw lines in order to make sense of reality. OK, um, there's a great story. I'll, I'll answer your question, but uh, to, to give you a bit of background, there was a, there was a great story I heard, true story um, about a Finnish, an elderly Finnish farmer. Um, back in, I think it was around about the 1900s, where Russia and Finland were renegotiating the border between the two countries. And the border between Russia and Finland went right through the middle of this Finnish farmer's farm, right? So when I say right through the middle, I mean it literally. I mean, his barn was in Russia and his cow shed was in Finland, right? And uh, anyway, one day uh, a Russian delegation turned up on his doorstep and they said, listen, uh, pal, you need to make your mind up which side of the border you want to live on because mm -hmm. we've got a census coming up and we need to work out who's eligible for it. Now, this put the Finnish farmer, uh, Jay, in a bit of a dilemma because obviously Mother Russia had been very good to him over the years. They'd given him subsidies to work the land and they'd given him fresh running water and all these kinds of things. Um, so he didn't want to upset them. But at the same time, he was well into his 80s and um, he wasn't getting any younger. Uh, and he wanted to see out his days in, in Finland. So eventually he thought about it and he said to the Russians, uh, look, he said, Mother Russia has been very good to me over the years, blah, 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 blah. Um, but um, I'm an old man now. Uh, and so uh, not wishing to cause offence, I'd like to see out the rest of my days in Finland. And then he said, and besides, I don't think I could stand another Russian winter. Now, of course, obviously, that's a very funny story because the border goes right through the middle. It's a matter of millimetres, right? And you couldn't stand another Russian winter. But actually, um, there's a profound truth in that story. And that is our brains think very much like light travels in far straight lines because it has to, right? 
everything out there sits along a continuum, right? Gender, sexual affiliation, uh, race, uh, skin color, political affiliation, the colors of the electromagnetic spectrum, everything out there is gray. Mm. And in order to make sense of reality, to work out how the multitude of different elements relate to and interact with each other, we need to dissect its amorphous, unstructured content into smaller, sharper, self-contained bite-sized units, okay? We need to draw life uh, lines in life's internal grayness in order to construct for ourselves the illusion of a checkerboard surface along which we can move sense and reason uh, like rational thinking chess pieces in an orderly, predictable and rule-based fashion, okay? Um, we need, as uh, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once put it, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, mm. okay, which is a lovely phrase. So chess works because the board is black and white. Life works because our brains are black and white. Okay, so we have to draw lines in order to make sense of reality. Simple example, um, speed limits, right? So, um, you know, we need to have a speed limit of, say, 50, it might be, you might find it very, very unfortunate if you're done by the police cameras going at 55 and you may say, well, come on, I was only five over, but where do you draw the line? Yeah. Okay, if you make it 56 and you're done don't doing 58, you're just kicking the problem down the line. So we need to have lines. We need to have cutoffs for speed limits. We need to have cutoffs for exam passes. We need to have cutoffs for this and that. And we need to have cutoffs for all kinds of things. We need to categorize the world. Gender is another one of these. Okay. So, man, woman, male, female is a kind of a, a, a binary categorization system that makes the world simple. Okay. Yeah. Now, there may well be a spectrum, right? And evidence suggests that there is, but that is not to say that men and women don't exist as the kind of the binary ends of that spectrum. And I think that's something that we need to remember, that if there may well be a spectrum, but man, that doesn't mean to say that the, the two ends of it don't exist. Yeah. Now, I think what's what started to happen is I think that, remember I said that the categorization instinct evolved to make the world a simpler place in order to make it predictable, to simplify the world, because if we didn't have categories, everything would be all over the place. What we need, what most things have, are an optimal number of categories in any particular kind of context or, or milieu. So, for example, I mentioned earlier the colours of the electromagnetic spectrum, the rainbow. So you've got red, orange, yellow, indigo, green, red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, and violet. Okay, so you've got seven colours of the rainbow that our eyes can see when we stand back. Actually, we all know that there are no lines between red and yellow or orange and green or whatever. Mm. Actually, it's just what our brains perceive. Actually, the closer you go into the rainbow, the more it just becomes, you just can't draw lines in it. Uh, and our brains, basically, again, to simplify things, have evolved the ability to see in the West anyway, some cultures are actually different, uh, to see seven colours, because actually those seven colours are pretty much the optimal number we need to make sense of the world in a world of colour. 
So man and woman are two binary categories, which for many, 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 many years has made it simple for us to navigate gender. Now, I think what we need to be careful of is when categories get hijacked uh, by ideology and not mm-hmm. functionality. That's where we need to be cautious. And I'll give you a great example of this. Um, there was an incident which occurred on an airline here in the UK uh, a few years ago where, you know, when you're on an airline and the duty-free trolley comes through um, and it's got like perfumes on there, like, yeah. okay, and usually they're divided up into men and women's perfumes, okay? Well, this particular airline had that, and there was someone on that flight one day who thought that that was discriminatory against trans people, men and male and female perfumes. And he wrote into the airline, and he said, come on, this is just not good enough. This is, you know, why do we make distinctions between male and female perfumes? Actually, it should all be the same. Mm. So the airline um, backed down and they don't make distinctions between male and female perfumes anymore. Now, this is like a budget airline um, and they fly on pretty, they don't fly long haul. Now, what you've got here is a situation now where let's assume that not all cabin crew are perfume experts. So you say, I'd like perfume X. And they'll say, well, you say, well, it's a a woman's perfume. They can no longer go to the woman's drawer, right? They have to rummage through one big drawer, which basically on average will double their search time, probably quadruple it, actually. Whereas actually beforehand, they could just go, oh, okay, Rather than searching, you know, let's say between, I don't know, 20 perfumes, they're now searching between 40. Mm. Now, that is a case where categorization has been hijacked by ideology and the ideology has actually taken over the functionality of the categorization process. So without saying, you know, without... As I say, everyone's got their own beliefs, but from a purely, from my own purely scientific analysis of it, I think we should be wary of categorizations when the ideology starts hijacking the functionality and we start getting the reverse of what natural selection programmed us to do with categorization. If we're creating so many categories that it doesn't simplify our choices in our lives, but it makes it much more complicated, then I think we need to perhaps stand back and say, okay, we might need to review this. Does that make sense, mate? That is a brilliant way, probably the the best way I've heard it being described. Uh, okay. In all I'm just about to. Pro- I'll just. I, I'm just probably about to get cancelled there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking. I hope. I hope I haven't. I hope I haven't offended anyone with that. But that's my sci- That's my rational scientific analysis on it, and I'm happy to to argue that point with anybody. No, it's like we can't have blurred lines because blurred lines creates confusion, and society is now in detriment because now we we we've created this problem that wasn't originally there. So now we're yeah. to try and appeal and appease 
the problem, but we can't yeah. because it's totally blurred. <laughs> it's like, how do we fix this problem that is yeah. now no longer straight lined? Like our brains can't rationalize the blurriness. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that's true, and I, I, as I, I think, yeah. I mean, it, we have we have categories. Our ability to categorize. There is no living creature on the planet, Jay, that doesn't have the ability to make distinctions in its world, to categorize it, to draw meaningful segments in its world. Even even an organism as sim- as, as simple as a single celled amoeba has the ability to differentiate between light and dark so that it can move away from one and, and towards another. Every single living creature on the planet uh, has the ability to make distinctions in this world and to categorise it for exactly the reasons that I've just outlined that we have. It's when those categories start becoming so diffuse and profuse uh, that they start to make a mockery of that. They start to make it very, well, impossible sometimes to make clear decisions. That's, I think, the point where we start to maybe need to step back and say, okay, perhaps let's review this. Uh, and I think that's 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 my rational take on it. I don't say that with any political motive or or um or standpoint um and i don't mean it in any discriminatory way either i'm just talking purely purely from a rational scientific argument uh, yeah. there and i don't i personally don't hate anybody i don't try no. to offend anybody the fact is a lot of people just get offended over pretty much anything these days anyway because they can't really rationalize thoughts properly they just go oh that's easy i'll just say I'm offended straight away and call you some kind of phobe and cancel you because it's easier to do. So uh, you're kind of like... Absolutely, going. yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, I wrote a piece the other week about lines. It's, uh, you know, it's quite fun actually writing about... There's all kinds of hidden lines in, mm. in the world. Um, and like we don't quite know what the right thing to do is, what side of it is. I'll give you a great example, right? So, a couple of a couple of simple examples I thought of actually only only today. So, when we go into the new year, right, and you haven't seen it, let's say me and you are mates, right, uh, and uh, we let's say we're getting into next year, twenty twenty four. We haven't been in contact for a while, and I I email you, uh, and I email you, let's say, in the twenty first of January. Is it too late for me to wish you Happy New Year on 21st of January? Uh, hi, Jay. Haven't heard of you for a while. Happy New Year, by the way, mate. Probably just about all right on the 21st of January. But where do you draw the line? Mm. Where does it come? Where does it start? Look, if I contacted you in July, I said, hey, Jay, Happy New Year. I think this guy's nuts, right? Unless I'm wishing you an, an early Happy New Year for 2025, right? Which I might be. Well, I'd be even more nuts if I did that. But so, uh, you know, there's a line. We all, we've all been in that situation, right? We've all like, we've all thought, and we've all asked ourselves the question, yeah, you know, because you want to start the email off with something. Happy New Year, 18th of January. Mm, I'll yeah, accept right. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So there's that one. Here's another one, right? Talk about this is the fun side of like categories. Like, you know, we've all done it where you go into a supermarket, you go into or a restaurant or a cafe or whatever, and uh, you hold the door open for someone behind you. Um, what's the acceptable distance, right? There's an awkward distance, isn't there? When you go into a cafe or a restaurant and you hold the door and the person's maybe about 20 feet away, do you hold it? Because what you're doing then is you might be making them run. 
right? You might be bullying, it might be a form of <laughs> might be a form of bullying. Your, your kids are like, you know, they're gonna run and you don't want to make them do that, do you? So what's the it's the awkward, I call it the awkward distance. What's the what's the dis, what's the line where you can say, okay, I'm not gonna hold the door open for you, and it doesn't appear rude. So these kind of life, life is all about blurriness, right? Like there's all of these indistinct kind of uh, gray zones in life and we evolve the ability to categorize to draw lines in the world as i say the the fallacy of misplaced concreteness as alfred north whitehead once put it in order to make sense of the world so um we just need to be careful that we don't create too many categories just to fit ideological and identity uh, needs uh, fulfill identity and ideology needs rather than um, uh, functional ones. I think. Well, that's another blurred line attaching identity with gender and making that a construct with yourself. Yeah. But then again, Absolutely. I totally agree with everything you just said. It, it's fantastic and and brilliantly uh, articulated. Something that I am still trying to do myself. <laughs> but. Well, well, they- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, well, I might, as I say, it might be. Uh, it's, it, I think it's it's a, as I say, it's a it's a it's a common sense. It's always a compromise position, really. Mm. Uh, you know, we don't want to have too many categories that just make life impossible, uh, because that's exactly you end up at, with, with if you have if you categorize everything, you have like hundreds of different categories for one simple. Um, particular context, it's you end up having no categories at all. It's the same thing. Everything becomes, you know, you you, you can't navigate it. You break so, the human brain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. My final question for you, Kev. This is sort of um, a two-parter. You can answer yeah. however way you want. But what, where do you see or foresee this heading in the future, yourself? And the second part well, is. What, this, what going, this podcast or what? Oh no, not, not the podcast. <laughs> I, I foresee us having another conversation. I think we might be both out of a job after the end of this one, mate. <laughs> we'll both be cancelled. <laughs> yeah, that's I'll right. Yeah, you'll be coming over to London, mate. I'll be you'll be working in a bar. I think that's what you'll be doing. I'll be, I'll be hiding away. <laughs> I'll, I'll be, be hiding behind there, that door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you don't want to know what's behind there, mate. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Where do I see it? Where do I see it heading? Where do you see this? Uh, this blurry lines sort of heading in the future with gender and that. And what's next for you? Uh, well, what where I see, uh, it's really interesting. I think what's the, the, the reason, one of the main driving forces, I think, behind this, um, Jay, is, is, is social media, I think. I think, yeah. you know, never before have we ever been in a situation where we can be exposed to so many people that are like-minded um, and so many people that are not like us at all. And I think we've never found, never before in, in history, have we ever found ourselves in a position where we, um, our identity depends very much not on what we necessarily believe, but upon what we're perceived to believe in mm-hmm. a public forum. And I think that's where this is all coming from. I think um, that identity, um, we, we, we have a need, we have, as, as human beings, we have 
uh, counter opposing needs. We have a need to be unique and stand out, but we also have a need to belong. So uh, we have a, a need for uniqueness and a collectivist um, uh, need to belong to, to like-minded groups and all that. And I think we're struggling to find that balance at the moment. And I think that um, we are getting to a situation where um, the shelf space for identity is becoming more and more squeezed. Um, and the more identities that we, and again, I'm you know not casting any aspersions, the more identities that we create, the more that shelf is getting filled up and the more that say, you know, we're going to create more in order to stand out from those, from those other ones. So I think what, what we tend to do, what's happened on social media is we, when we get into a debate with people about stuff, we don't think like scientists. We, we think like lawyers we try to win the argument at all costs rather than necessarily try to find out the truth. And that's because a lot of the time our identity depends on winning the argument. Um, all these things, as I say, they, 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 they bolster and, and, um, uh, and, and fuel our identity. So I think we need to be very careful we need to look at social media. I mean, things are already happening, I know, in Australia um, about inter limiting internet use for, 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 for kids at school and, and screen yeah. time, et cetera, et cetera. I personally think that's a very healthy way of, of going. Um, but yeah. I think I think we I I can't predict where it's gonna go for certain, Jay, but I think that these things eventually reach a kind of a tipping point. Um, and I think they have to, you know, because as as I say, otherwise society will grind to a halt. But I think we just, I think podcasts like like, like you do, where you, where you tackle tough issues like this, I think the very first brick in the wall is education. Yeah. It's making people aware of what's going on. Uh, because if they're not aware of what's going on, they can't see it. Um, then nothing's going to change. But I think the very first thing is 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 just simple education. Say, look, this this is what what you know, not necessarily what's going on, but this is what I think. This is what he or she thinks. This is what we think's going on here. Um, and having a rational discussion about that, I think that's that's what's going to you know um, perhaps turn things around. We're we're certainly not going to turn things around by you know, the kind of click and run caveman kind of stuff, cancelling and, you know, you know, cancel culture and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. So so I can't predict for certain where it's going to go, but I think we need to talk about it and we need to be aware. And just thinking of, you know, as I say, being aware of the categorization issue and where categories originally came from, why they evolved and how they can be an optimal number um for functional reasons i think that's a good that is a good starting point but i can't predict where it's going to go and, and, and when it's going to 
turn, but it will turn. It won't go. It won't go on like this for forever. Mm. Um, and um, what what's next for me? Yes. Uh, well, I um, I'm bringing out a new book on psychopaths. Just started writing it in probably 2025. Oh. Um, and I also do my own podcast. Actually, we might we must have you on. I do my own podcast with. Um, I don't know if you're into your music, but I do a podcast with a guy uh, called Bruce Dickinson. He's the he's the lead singer of a, of a rock band called Iron Maiden. So, oh know, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, I know them. Yeah, uh, quite popular in well, quite popular around the world actually. Uh, so Bruce is the lead singer of Iron Maiden. No way. Uh, and we do a we do a podcast uh, together. Um, we've finished series two. We're going to do series three later on in the year. Uh, so we'll stay in touch, mate, me and you. Yeah, we'll stay please. in touch. That'd be a lot um, of fun. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it'd be good. So we've, uh, we, we, we just do it. It's the wild side of psychology, really. We call it psycho schizo espresso. Um, um, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, a long story behind why it's called that, which I probably shouldn't tell you, uh, on air, but, um, <laughs> But um, we were uh, anyway. No, no, I won't tell you. But anyway, so we'll be recording series three of that, doing a writing a um, writing another psychopath book, and desperately trying to stay uncancelled. I think is probably what uh, what what I'll I'll be doing for the foreseeable future. That is definitely going to keep you busy, my friends. But thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice, and having this conversation with me. I totally agree with you. Education is first and foremost part of making people aware and helping people realize the state of the world that's going on. Otherwise, we'll just fall through the cracks and we'll just let the damaging things continue to go on and on and on. So I'm grateful for you and and all your research and your work, but thank you for joining me on the Storybox podcast. Jay, it was uh, seriously, mate, I've done podcasts before. That was an absolute pleasure. Uh, it was genuine fun. I, I really enjoyed that. Some great questions. And I can see why your podcast, podcast is is, uh, is so successful, mate. And I wish you all the best going forward for the future. You're a top man. And uh, it was it was genuinely enjoyable. That was it really was, mate. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 